The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, I want to go back to Mark, the seventh chapter. I said last time that, Lord willing, we would come back and pick up the story of this Syrophoenician woman who, who came to Jesus. And, and I, I just, I just got to tell you, uh, if you know anything about the history and culture of that day, she didn't have a chance when it came to Jesus. This was a woman who was from the wrong side of the tracks. She uh, was living in a place that was filled with non-Jews. It was frowned upon for Jews to even have much interaction with them. You could have commerce there with them, but you didn't really want to get too close to any of these non-Jews. And we're told that uh, she was a Greek. That means she was a uh, she was a Gentile. She was not Jewish herself. Apparently not at all. There wasn't even, you know, like in Samaria, they were, you might say, half Jews. At least they had somewhat of a bloodline connection to the Jewish people. But this woman didn't have a chance. She, was, she wasn't even of the Jewish faith. She wasn't one who had been raised on the Torah or the prophets or the wisdom literature. She didn't have any kind of background in any form or fashion, according to what we read here at least, when it comes to the true oracles of God. As far as the truth goes, she was a foreigner. Let's begin reading in Mark chapter 7 and verse 24. And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into an house, and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled. For it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it under the dogs. She answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come up to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. There's so much here that I don't even know if I can cover it all this morning, but so many things that I see here that are so important. As I said in, 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 by way of introduction, this woman was from the wrong side of the tracks. She was from Tyre and Sidon, which were not typically Jewish cities. We're told she was a Greek or a non-Jew, a Gentile, which was a big problem for the Jews of that day, especially the religious Jews. They were bemoaning the fact that Greek culture was permeating every aspect of Roman culture. You know, the Romans, it's kind of funny. You, you've heard the statement, the, 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 grand, uh, uh, the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome. And that's a pretty good statement because Greece, Greek culture actually infused the Roman Empire. 
the Romans didn't have much of a culture. They, they were, it was a lot of grandeur. They had a lot of big parades and, and, and triumphs that they would have, and they built great buildings and all that. But when it came to the literature and their philosophy and their religion, most of it came from Greece. Greece was a very glorious place in the sense of uh, it was full and rich in culture. But the problem with that is that it, it permeated all of the Roman culture and it began to infuse itself much like, much like the Egyptian teachings did into, into the, uh, the life and into the religion of the Jews. There was, there, was a, uh, there was a problem with that and they didn't like that. The Jews hated that. And then it says she was a Syrophoenician by nation. And that's interesting because... The Phoenicians, which we read about, they're almost, uh, our history tells us that they are, uh, are, are, are the uh, blood brothers or possibly even actually the Philistines, okay? The Philistines and the Phoenicians are, 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 are the, the Philistines are really kind of the precursors to the Phoenicians. And, um, and of course, ultimately the Phoenicians, interestingly, they took to the seas and they founded Carthage, uh, which is on the north shore of Africa. And, um, and they were very important in Roman history, as you know. But so they were, this woman was a Syrophoenician. The Philistines were the sworn enemies of the, of the Jews throughout their history. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Phoenicians were not really, uh, I don't know how much they were uh, persecuted by the Romans, but they weren't thought of fondly because they were the, they were the, uh, uh, the family, if you will, of the Carthaginians and, you know, the Punic Wars and all that that occurred that were ter terrible uh, times of conflict for the Romans. This woman didn't have a chance. I mean, think about her coming to the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. But <laughs> there's no chance in the world that, that the Jewish Messiah is going to listen to her, right? But we know something about Jesus that she must have hoped for. I'm not sure she knew it, but she must have at least had a hope in her heart about it. Maybe suspected from what she'd heard. And, and that's this. How, that Jesus calls the craziest type people to serve Him. You know, he didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem and say, Nicodemus, come follow me. He didn't go to Caiaphas, the high priest, and say, hey, you're learned in the law. Let's get together and let's, let's work this thing out. He went to initially a bunch of old dirty, hardworking, uneducated, we're told later, fishermen, common people, common men, fishermen that... I mean, I don't know if you've been to a pier lately, uh, to a wharf where they're actually fishing. I've been to one or two when I've gone to Gulf Shore sometimes, walk by a place or go somewhere where they're, they're actually out there fishing. And, and they don't do it like they, I mean, down there at least, I haven't run across folks that do it like they did here where they threw out nets. But, but, but have you smelled a place like that lately? <laughs> It doesn't smell all that good. I'll tell you, when I come in from fishing, when, when I go with Brother James or somebody, somebody else, and I come in, you know, 
my, my hands don't smell that good. You know, when I go to eat, I can still smell the fish on my hand. These fishermen weren't your upper class. They weren't the ones that you would normally think about going to to get your followers if you were the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Of course, everything about him has been upending all of the prior thoughts about him. He, he, he should have been born in the palace, right? He should have been descended from, from a king and living in luxury when he was born, but he was born in a manger. He was born in a stable. And he was laid in a feed trough. Everything about him is different. Hey, and it gets worse. You remember? He called a publican. He called a tax collector. He called someone that even the Jews hated because he was a Jew. Matthew, Levi, was a Jew who collaborated with the Romans and that made him an outcast. But Jesus called a publican to serve him. I, I, I would love to have seen the look on Peter's face when they went through walking by Matthew and Jesus stops and turns. Peter is looking at him as, as he's turning. He said, and, and you see in his eyes the horror dawning in Peter's eyes. He's not going to call him. And then he goes to him and said, no, Lord, no, Lord. What, what are you doing? And he said, hush, follow me. You know what Matthew does? <laughs> he closes up shop and he leaves all the money, all the luxury, all the Roman guards and everything and he follows Jesus. He follows him. See, we know this about Jesus. If you didn't know this about Jesus and this woman came to you and said, hey, I, I, I want to go talk to this man. I want to go hear what he has to say. He might could help me. Especially if you were a Jew in that day. First of all, you'd say, woman, I don't need to be talking to you. But there's no point in you going to see Jesus because he is the Messiah. He's the Jewish Savior. Jesus called a woman of the streets. More than one. Jesus called fishermen. Jesus called tax collectors. Jesus called zealots. And He called doubters. And He called a whole amalgamation of, of, of people that don't normally, wouldn't normally associate. Wouldn't normally be together. Let me just say this. Isn't that so like the church today? Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't be your friend if you weren't in church. That's not what I'm saying. Because I'd, I'd try to be, and we ought to try to be one another's friends even outside of church. But think about how God has brought us together here from every kind of walk of life you can think of. And now we're not just friends. We're family. We're family. Okay? We, we have differing interests. We have things... Some of us, uh, you know, some, some like this, uh, Brother Warren, bless his heart, he comes in this morning with, a, with an Auburn mask on. Can you believe that? <laughs> They're actually Auburn fans in this church. Can you believe it? <laughs> but, but guess what? There's also a Mississippi State fan or two in the church, and there's a few Alabama fans, and I think really we're about on the same level, see, when it comes, when it comes to the kingdom of God. But think about all the differing interests. The Lord brings us together from every walk of life. It doesn't matter where you come from. Young, old, rich, poor. 
Alabama fan, Auburn fan, you know, it doesn't matter. You like to hunt, you like to fish, you like to, like to bowl, you like to work on cars, you like to watch TV, you know. <laughs> Not all my hobbies are, but, uh, but my point is the Lord does these kinds of things. So, you, so she comes to him, and I want you to notice first of all her petition. She was a desperate mother facing a desperate circumstance. Uh, when your child is sick, that is a desperate situation. It's bad enough when you're sick. It's bad enough when your spouse is sick. But speaking from experience, and some of you can speak from that kind of experience as well, when you have a sick child, that's a desperate circumstance. And you'll do desperate things. You'll do whatever you can to try to help them. And, and this child was worse than, than, than any other in the sense that this child was possessed of a devil. This child was possessed of a devil. And she comes to Jesus and beseeches him that he would cast out the devil. Back over in Matthew, actually Matthew is the only other gospel where we have this account given to us. So we're going to turn back there, just sort of supplement the record, if you will, uh, here with what Matthew has to say. And by the way, the, the, the accounts are not inconsistent. There's differences in the accounts, but they supplement each other. They don't take away from each other. But in the 15th chapter <clears throat> of the book of Matthew, it says that when Jesus, about verse 22, uh, when he went to Tyre and Sidon, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, have mercy, listen to her, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now, the word here that is in verse 23, it says, He answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She crieth after us. The, the disciples' perception of what she was doing, which probably was a correct perception, was that she was, she was literally shrieking after them. She was crying out to the top of her lungs. The word there in Greek literally means to croak. It's, it's the word for, a, for a, a crow calling. And it's a very, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like it was like fingers on the chalkboard to them. She just kept on shrieking after them persistently. She, and she was crying after the Lord Jesus Christ. Why Jesus? Why Jesus? It tells us back in Mark that... Uh, uh, that a certain woman had heard that she had heard of him. She had heard of him. Verse, verse 24 we had read about in Mark, and you keep your finger in Matthew 15 if you want to. Verse 24 of Mark said, he could not be hid. We talked about that last time. I'm not going to go back over it too much except to say that if Jesus is in your life, it ought to be the case that he cannot be hid. People ought to be able to say of you, you know, I don't know what he believes. I don't know what she thinks about these things, but she acts differently than other people. It's obvious there's something in her life or his life that's different. He could not be hid, you see. He could not be hid uh, in the area. There was a time when he was in the house and it was noise that he was in the house. If the Lord Jesus Christ is in our house, that is in our home or in our church, it ought to be noised abroad in the community. People ought to know that.
Not because we go knocking down doors to tell them, but they ought to be able to see our lives when we're not in church. They ought to be able to read our Facebook page. Hmm. Might step on some toes there, right? <laughs> Might step on my own toe if I'm not careful. They ought to be able to say, you know, something's different about them. Let me go. Did you know, I promise you, this is going to happen. Somebody is going to find out that you're a primitive Baptist and they're going to say, let me go to their Facebook page and see what they really believe. Let me go to their Facebook page and see about this person. Let me ask you a question. If they go to your Facebook page and start checking it out, are you, are you going to wish they didn't know you were a primitive Baptist? <laughs> I'm sorry at times. There have been times in the past when that might have been the case with me. I've tried to be careful and cautious about that now. But see, it was noise that he was, he cannot be hid. He could not be hid. And she had heard about him. Now, let me say something here that might sound strange coming from a primitive Baptist pulpit, but I think you'll understand what I'm, what I'm talking about when I get through. Do you know that nobody will see Jesus if they haven't heard of him? You ever thought about that? Now, now, I don't, all right, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I am not speaking of the new birth here. You, you understand, I think we're on the same page there. We're not talking about a dead alien sinner seeking Jesus to get born again. That's not what I'm talking about. The new birth is solely and wholly of the Lord. It's not something, he says in one place, John the sixth chapter, about the 44th verse, he says, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. You cannot come to Jesus in the new birth except you be drawn by Jesus to the new birth. And it says in, his, in John 5, 25, I believe it is, he said, Behold, the hour is coming and now is when they which are dead shall hear the preacher calling, the, the track, read the track. No, they shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. See, that's the new birth. So that's not what I'm talking about. That's not where we are. I'm moving us past the new birth. These are born again children of God. Did you know that no man will seek Jesus if they haven't heard of him? They may be seeking something, but they don't know what it is. If you're born again, you're seeking something. You become a seeker the moment you're born again because you're no longer satisfied with the world or your old human nature. But the purpose of the church, the main purpose of the ministry, the purpose of your ministry, as, as a, whether you're called to preach or not, is that you might point people to Jesus. I wish I could get hold of every child of God the moment they're born again and explain to them what's happened to them and tell them who they need to be following. Boy, that would be great, wouldn't it? You know, then you don't have to unteach them stuff, Brother Glendon. You, most of the time, unfortunately, most of what has to happen in the life of a child of God, especially the older they are, they have to unlearn so many things that they've been taught throughout their lives. Hey, I don't throw us. I understand the idea that you think you have to accept Jesus in order to go to heaven. Because I'll tell you, when you're born again and you're not satisfied anymore with where you are, you want to do something. You know, a baby doesn't, if a baby's born into this world and lays there lifelessly, there's something wrong with it. <laughs> what happens when a baby's born? He starts crying. He doesn't know what he wants. You, you, you don't go to the baby and say, what do you want? What do you want? Come on, tell me. No, you know, <laughs> you know what he wants. You know what he needs. He needs a mother's milk. 
Beloved, the child of God that's been born again doesn't always know what he wants and he searches out there and sometimes they end up in a church that says, okay, you're not really there yet. You've got to do this and do that and follow this plan, pray this prayer, make this choice, make this decision and then you'll be where you need to be. Makes sense, doesn't it? They're not happy anymore where they are. (laughs) Oh, that I could get hold of that one and say, Just like that baby. What does the baby need? The baby needs his mother's milk. What does the newborn child of God need? The one that's just been born of the Spirit? He needs the milk of the Word. He doesn't need to be told to do something. He doesn't need to be told, oh, well, you're almost there. Let me help you get you all the way across the finish line. No, he needs to be told that Jesus said it is finished. (laughs) It is finished. (laughs) I've done what's necessary. I have saved you for eternity. You need to follow me now. Not to get to heaven, but because you're going to heaven. See? This woman had heard of Him. Beloved people that haven't heard of Him don't seek Him, not at least in the way that they should. As I said, you're always seeking. When you're born of the Spirit, you begin to seek. But you don't know what you're looking for. In Romans, the 13th chapter, listen to this. This is what we're talking about. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 13. I'm sorry, Romans 10. That didn't sound right. Romans 10 and verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me just stop right there and tell you that is not an Armenian verse. That is not an Armenian verse. There's no verse in the Scripture that is, that is an Armenian verse or a, a verse that we need to stay away from. We need to embrace that. You know why? <laughs> because it's telling us the truth. It's not saying if you call on Him, you'll be saved for eternal heaven and you'll be saved from, from eternal hell. If you go back and look at the context, and we don't have time to this morning, but if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, you'll understand it says that, uh, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved for eternal heaven. No, he goes on to tell us they're going about to establish their own righteousness. They have a zeal of God. That, you don't have a zeal of God if you haven't been born again. And by the way, it's a zeal. It didn't say a zeal for God. It's a zeal of God. It came from God. <laughs> This is a child of God, but they're being, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're going about to establish their own righteousness. They're trying to work their way to heaven. They're trying to do enough good works. They're trying to make enough right choices. They're trying to learn enough about the scriptures that one day maybe they can get it into heaven. What a burden that is. You know what he says? You need to call on the name of the Lord. You, don't, you need to quit all this mess of trying to work your way to heaven trying to insert yourself into the process because you need to look to the Lord. He said, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Did you know Christ is not the end of the law for righteousness if you don't believe? Now, 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 don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that he's not, in fact, the end of the law for righteousness. He is, in fact. But to you, he's not. You're still trying to struggle and make your own way out there, you see? You're, You're trying to do it yourself. You're still going to heaven because he's finished the work, but you're trying to, you're going to be miserable here. And that's the point of this kind of, see, there's more than one kind of salvation taught in the word of God. The eternal salvation of God's people is in his hands, 
But the, 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 the working out of that salvation is here. And it doesn't, your eternal destiny doesn't depend on whether you're successful in working it out or not. But boy, your, your temporal happiness and joy surely does. You will never be satisfied as long as you're inserting yourself into the process and trying to work your way to heaven. And that's what he's talking about here. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've said this many times. I say it again. Anytime you see the word saved in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, saved from what? Here, saved from the misery of trying to work your way to heaven. You call on the Lord, he says. And now listen then. But here's, here's my point for, for this purposes of this message this morning. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And he goes on to say, how shall they preach except they be sin, establishing some more foundational principles of the kingdom of God. But, but here's, here's what I'm saying. And this is, this is what we need to remember about the church. What's the, what's the primary purpose of the church? Well, certainly to worship God in spirit and in truth. But it's to, it's to preach the word of God, to preach the good news of the grace of God to those in the world that are interested in it. And a little secret I'll let you in on is only children of God who have been born again will ever be interested in it. But it's our job to preach that. Don't think that, it, well, we're just going to sit back here with the frozen and chosen and this, us four and no more. And we're going to sit. Listen, there's a whole world out there. He tells us in the Bible that it's a, there's a people of God in every kindred, nation, tongue and tribe. It's a number that no man can number. You think this is all there is? <laughs> man, I hope not. <laughs> it's going to be mighty lonely up in heaven, isn't it? No, it's not all there is. There are mi untold millions of God's children out there, and it's not our place to make them children, because God took care of that, but it's our place to feed the children. See, we're going to talk about that in a week or two. When we go back to, here go <laughs> chapter 8 of Mark, you're going to see, well man, here we go again. He's feeding the 4,000. He just keeps on feeding. You know what? Praise God. He keeps on feeding his children. He keeps on feeding them. <clears throat> we need to be preaching. You know, Jesus shouldn't be hid in our lives. He shouldn't be hid in our churches. He shouldn't be hid in our daily walk. He shouldn't be hid in work or in our social gatherings. Now, now that doesn't mean that we're, we're always in your, we're not some kind of in your face. Christianity folks. We're not, we're not trying to get out there and knock doors down. I've, I've never seen in the Word of God where Paul the Apostle had to knock one door down. The Lord opened doors of opportunity. Amen. But Peter said you better be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh thee of the hope that lies within you. He said, that's, that's my job. That's your job. You don't have to get on the street corner and preach. Now listen, if God impresses you to do that and it's from the Lord, do it. <laughs> But, but I hadn't, he hadn't done it to me yet, you know. He hadn't impressed me to go out there in the middle of the street and stop traffic and start a protest or start some kind of sidewalk ministry. But he did give me a sidewalk ministry. Every day when I walk down the sidewalk, I should be showing forth that I'm a child of God. Somebody ought to want to ask me sometime, hey man, why, why are you able to? You know, I've had that happen recently. Praise God. I'm mean, not saying that to pat myself on the back. There's so many times I hide it. There's too many times like Peter will do where I deny him and want to fit in with the world. But praise God, every once in a while, every once in a while I get it right. Every once in a while the Lord blesses me to be 
at least do something. I don't understand how, because I sure know how much I fail, but, but, but I've had a couple of times lately, somebody say, hey, you know, why do you believe this? Or what is it that, that you believe, you know? They, they ought to see us as different. This woman had heard somewhere about Jesus. Somebody had told her, or she'd been standing in a crowd, and she'd overheard it, or it had come through the grapevine, so to speak, and she had heard about Jesus. People who hear about Jesus, who are children of God, are usually struggling in this world, unless they've so filled their lives up with the things of this world. But most of the time, they're struggling in this world, and they're wanting to hear these good tidings, this good news. He could not be hid. She'd heard of him. And because she had heard of him, she realized that he was her only hope. So, so now notice what happens. She comes to him and says, in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, O Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. This account of how Jesus deals with her can be perplexing if you don't understand what's going on. Now, first of all, just remember that Jesus is not being ugly to her. He is not somehow changed from this kind, compassionate, loving Savior, loving teacher that he was. And, and, and decided now, well, I'm just going to be aloof and elitist. That's not what he's doing, okay? But she approached him in a way first that, that really she had no right to approach him. She called him thou son of David. Remember, she's not a Jew. She's not a, she's a Greek. She's not a, of the Jewish lineage, you know? And, and the truth is, the only ones that really had the right to approach him is the son of David in that day, in a sense, were the Jews, but, but then I want you to notice, sometimes we say, hey, why did he rebuff her? Why did he try to send her away? You notice he didn't actually do that. Notice that he said, let the children first be filled. First. He said children first, not children only. <laughs> he said children first. And this was a reference, I believe, to, I know it was, this was a reference when he talks about children to the house of Israel. Now, there was a certain timing to the ministry of Jesus. There was a certain timing to the ministry of the gospel. But back in the book of Daniel, you know, Daniel was a, an amazing prophet, okay? <laughs> now, around the uh, time that they began to, to discuss which books to include in the canon of Scripture, there were some who wanted to leave Daniel out because they said there's just no way Daniel could really be inspired because there's no way he could have he could have known all this stuff that was going to happen beforehand <laughs> he, he just you know isaiah is the same way they tried to they tried to take parts of isaiah out because well that must have obviously been written after the fact because because only if god told him this could it have been well that's the answer by the way god did tell them this <laughs> they, they were prophets okay and in the ninth chapter of daniel we find really the only place that predicts not just the coming of the Messiah. That's all throughout the Old Testament Scripture. But he tells us the exact timing of when the, when the Messiah would come. 
He tells us that in the ninth chapter. Some of you have heard of the 70 weeks of years of Daniel's prophecy. And, and, and he tells us about these 70 weeks. And, and, and let me, I don't again have time to go into it. Just understand, and we can talk about it later, that the 70 weeks he's talking about there are weeks of years. So, so one week would be seven years. 70 weeks are 490 years. And, and, and look, look in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. This, this is the angel talking to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. There are six things contained right there. Again, I could preach all morning on that, but I'm not going to. Just notice... It sounds a whole lot like what Jesus did when he was here, doesn't it? <laughs> he made an end of sins. I, I didn't. Uh, the Pope didn't. Uh, the priest didn't. Jesus did. Uh, finish the transgression. In other words, complete that, that portion of the, the redemptive work that was necessary. Someone had to live a perfect life and die a perfect death and be resurrected, you see. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. It took the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to do this. To seal up the vision and the prophecy. You know why there's no more vision and prophecy today? If I ever show up here in church and say, hey, I've had a vision. Well, it might be a good dream. I told you a few of them last week. They were pretty interesting dreams, crazy dreams, but it's not a vision from God. It's not a prophecy that's inspired from the Lord. There are no more. And to anoint the most holy with a capital H, by the way. I hope it's that way in your book. That's what it is in mine. <laughs> Something's happened. What, Dan what Daniel's being told here is that Daniel, 70 weeks are determined. 490 years from now, from a certain point rather, the Messiah's coming. By the way, in the religious world today, beware of this fact. They often divide end times prophecy up like this. They say 69 of those weeks have ended and there's, there's a big gap between the 69th and the 70th week. Well, I don't believe that's what it's teaching us here. I believe those 70 weeks have been fulfilled and here's why. Now remember, Daniel is writing in Babylon. The, the nation of Israel has been taken captive. They're in Babylon, and there's a 70 years that they're going to be in Babylon, the 70 years captivity, okay? And notice that uh, in verse 25, they, he starts to tell Daniel about this, what's coming. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be, okay? Here we go. He says, from the time you're allowed to go home from Babylon till the time of the prince is going to be what? Seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And he goes on to say what's going to happen in that time. The streets shall be built again, the wall, even in troublous times. You read about that, the rebuilding of the streets and the walls of Jerusalem and the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah. You go over there and read it sometime. And, and so he says, basically 69 weeks, that is 483 years from the time that you're allowed to go home, the decree goes forth for you to go home. That's when the Messiah is going to come in. All right? So these figures are rough, by the way. They're estimates. If we could know the exact proper calendar to follow, we could predict to the day, and they could back then, I believe, 
But we could predict to the day exactly when Jesus was born and exactly when he started his public ministry. But because our calendars are not completely accurate, we can't do that. There's about a five to six year uh, margin of error in our calendar. So that means that Jesus was not necessarily born in 1 AD. Okay, He wasn't necessarily born in 1 AD. In fact, most folks think he was born a little before that. Okay, But that's not because this is wrong. That's because we're wrong. <laughs> we can't figure it out from our standpoint. It's not because the scriptures are wrong. So listen to these, listen to these timelines right quick. In, in, right around 457 B.C., about 457 B.C., and remember, B.C. counts down backwards. So, you know, if it's 457 B.C. this year, next year is 456 B.C. So it's counting down backwards, all right? Right around 457 B.C., best we can tell, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, issued the decree the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. They said, basically, any Jews that want to go home can. You can go home. That was the, so the going forth of the decree, about 457 B.C. That brings us up to year 1 A.D. By the way, you don't have a 0 A.D. <clears throat> you have a 1 B.C., and then it goes to 1 A.D. All right? So 0 is taken out. But from 457 to 1 A.D., what is that? 457 years, right? All right, if you fast forward a little further, okay, and you go to, um, you go to the, the 483 years, okay, remember we're at 457, 483 years, that brings us right to about 26 or 27 AD. And to give this margin of error of four, five, six years, let's just say between 26 and 30 AD. What happened between 26 and 30 A.D.? Probably around 27 or 28, maybe, maybe as late as 30 A.D. It was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It was the point where he came forward and he said, I am the Messiah. I, he began his public ministry. Now let's, let's keep reading here. After, verse 26, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Let me just stop you there and say, notice that it says after, the, and remember it says after 62 weeks, but you've already got seven weeks where they were rebuilding Jerusalem. That's 49 years, seven weeks. They, they're, they're allowed to go home for the next 49 years or so. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. And then another 400 and, uh, uh, 434 years passes to get you to the point where the, where the 69 weeks are. That's another 62 weeks, you see. Don't, don't, get, don't get too confused about it. Just understand that right around 26, 27 to 30 A.D. is the end of the 69, 69th week. And it says at the end of that, after that, it didn't say at that, after that shall the Messiah be cut off. And... Uh, and he goes on to talk about the destruction there, I believe, of Jerusalem. Well, that's after that, over in A.D. 70, okay? So what about the 70th week? What about that one week of seven years that some say is not coming to, to way later, still hadn't come yet? All right, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. There's that 70th week, right? And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. 
And for the overspreading of the abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, let's, the first part of that is what I want to focus on. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Seven years, right? Seven years. One week of seven years. That's the 70th week. So Jesus begins his public ministry. And during that beginning of that 70th week, of that week of seven years, okay, he is confirming the covenant with, with, with the Jews. His primary ministry was to the nation of Israel. In fact, all of his public ministry was primarily focused upon the nation of Israel. He was confirming the covenant that he made with Abraham, the covenant that his, his children would be as the sands of the sea, as the stars of the sky. That's the everlasting covenant. He was confirming that covenant with many. And it says, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. What's that talking about? Well, let me ask you this question. You know, those Jews offered sacrifices every year. They, became, they came in, especially on the Day of Atonement, Brother Mackey. They would offer a, a, a lamb there, and that was to remind them that they needed a perfect sacrifice. When did those sacrifices cease? The day that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified and then He was resurrected three days later, what happened to the veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from that which was without? It was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And you know what? They kept making sacrifices, but God didn't accept those anymore. <laughs> they weren't necessary anymore. The sacrifices and the oblation were ceased upon the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ Guess what that takes us to? Somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. In the midst of the week. Three and a half years. Well, he's confirmed the covenant for three and a half years himself. What about after that? <laughs> Over in Acts, the first chapter. As he's about to ascend back to the Father. <clears throat> In verse 6, as he's talking to them there in chapter 1, he says, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You know, they still didn't get it, <laughs> that the kingdom of God was within you. Boy, I, I need another two hours to preach on this. <laughs> the kingdom of God was within them. They said, Lord, are you going to restore it now? Notice this is the time for him to say uh, yes or no, but here's when. No, this is what he said. It's not for you to know. Quit worrying about that. You know, so many preachers, so many ministries are focused upon all the little details of the end times, what's called eschatology. That's their whole ministry is about eschatology. And beloved, Jesus said to his disciples, quit worrying about it. That's not what your job is. No matter what happens in the future, he said, it's not for you to know the times, but ye, he said, this is for you here. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in, listen, Jerusalem and in all Judea. That's, that's confirming the covenant, right? And in Samaria, now we're branching out and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Something's going to happen. Something's going to change. You know what? You know what happened about three and a half years after Jesus? And none of these, we can't pinpoint the dates, but I can tell you based on the prophecy what, that I believe is accurate. You know what happened about three and a half years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? There was a man named Saul who was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against God's children, headed to a place called Damascus. 
when the Lord stopped him in his tracks. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he said, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? I don't have time. Our time's gone this morning. But turn over to the 13th chapter of Acts sometime, about the 44th, 45th verse. You know what Paul's going to say there? Paul's going Paul's to say, because you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. What did Paul call himself? The apostle to the Gentiles. So, that last week, beloved, began with the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the middle of that week of, of seven years, He was crucified. And the public sacrifices, the sacrifices rather of the Old Testament ended. And about three and a half years later, as the apostles kept going around confirming the covenant primarily to the nation of Israel, the apostle to the Gentiles was converted. That week, beloved, is past. So what's that got to do with our message this morning? This woman was a Gentile coming to Jesus during the time of his public ministry when his primary focus was confirming the covenant to the nation of Israel. He's not being ugly to her. It's just not time yet to start turning to the Gentiles to minister. It's not time yet to go out. And the Apostle Paul's the one that's primarily going to start focusing outward on the Gentile nations. He's not being ugly to her. And my goodness, I wish we had time to finish this up. Maybe, maybe a little later on we can do this. But I want you to remember one thing if you don't remember anything else from this episode with the Syrophoenician woman. He said, let the children first be filled. For it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it under the dogs. I'll tell you, if you call me a dog, I'd take that as a great insult. But the Jews called all Gentiles dogs. Kuno is the Greek word for that. You know what word Jesus used to refer to this precious little Greek woman? He said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it under the kunarion, which is the Greek word for puppies. Puppies. Who doesn't love a puppy, you know? Who doesn't, you look around a little cute puppy, who doesn't care? You know, I, some old dogs I don't care about. Big old German Shepherd came up in Meredith and John Morgan's yard last night, and I was—I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But when he was a little puppy, I bet you I'd want to cuddle with it and play with it. See, the Lord's not being ugly to her. And ultimately, remember, he said, children first, but praise God, there are seconds. <laughs> and this woman didn't come to him demanding. She didn't come to him saying, well, Lord... I deserve everything that the Jews deserve. She just said, Lord, like David, just let me be a doorkeeper in your house. Do you know when you come to the church, you don't come to the church demanding your rights. If that's the way you're coming to the church, just stay away, okay? You're just going to mess things up. But if you're coming to the church with the idea that if they'll just let me slip in the back and just stand there and hold the door for each other, for people that are coming in and out, I'll be satisfied. 
That's what she said. She said, I just want the crumbs. The crumbs are enough for me. Beloved, I want to say to you this morning that the crumbs of the gospel are enough for me. But praise God, they aren't just crumbs. There's really no crumbs in the gospel. The seconds in the house of God are better than the firsts out there in the world. I tell you, beloved, the courses of meals in the house of God is better than any great banquet you'll ever find in the world out there. This woman knew that and the Lord loved her. And you know the rest of it. He said, go thy way. <laughs> Your daughter's healed. Praise God. This isn't a story about Jesus being ugly to a non-Jew. It's a story about Jesus loving this sweet little sister that came to Him not knowing any better than to call Him the Son of David. That came to Him even when His ministry was not primarily to anybody but the Jews. But the Lord's love spilled over to even a little Gentile, Syrophoenician, outcast woman. And praise God, His love spilled over to a little gordo, outcast, unworthy boy who had no clue about the glory and grace of God. But He showed me. He showed me. Praise God for His compassion and His love and His power to save His people from their sins. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.